everybody. Make sure I did my job here. Okay, I'm good. Hey, uh, good morning. Glad to be with you. Uh, and man, a couple weeks ago, Bobby asked and said, hey, I'm running the marathon. Do you think you could preach for me? And I would much rather um, do this than that. So um, my, my physical makeup lines me up better for standing here than running there. Um, but uh, uh, I, I love, uh, this is a couple times now that I've been to be able to be a part of Sunday mornings with you guys, so I'm always grateful for it. Bobby and Jeanette are really, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're great friends of my wife and I, and so we enjoy them, and uh, always enjoy a chance just to be up here with you guys. Uh, and in this series that we're in, uh, kicked off last week, and what we're doing is for the next few weeks, starting last week and moving forward, we're going through this uh, letter uh, in the New Testament where Paul uh, is writing to this young guy named Timothy. And, and really it's this legacy departing uh, uh, or imparting letter where Paul is writing as a guy who is uh, at the end of his life, and he knows that because he's in jail awaiting his death by execution um, because he's made Jesus his king and not the Roman emperor. Uh, and so as he is uh, finishing out his life there, he's looking back and writing a letter to this, this guy named Timothy, who if you read through the book of Acts, he meets him as a young convert uh, to Christ who grew up with, with a family uh, with a spiritual legacy who's imparted to him. We've, last uh, week was you know Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice and raised this young guy named Timothy to know Scripture, know Christ. Uh, and so now Paul has seen this guy and has developed his giftedness and have, has walked with him to become a guy uh, who is using what God's given him to serve God. And he writes this letter as kind of this legacy uh, imparting final note of what matters, what Paul wants to make sure Timothy has as Paul takes off uh, into eternity, but what Timothy knows that he has to also give on as he's going, which is why in this series we've called it Keep Going. It's this idea of what God's given to uh, Paul, Paul's giving to Timothy, to make sure Timothy keeps giving it away and keeps giving it away, and give it away now if you're a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. Uh, but I just caught it and I had to verbalize it or else it's going to eat on me. So, um, but as we go, and Bobby will be very proud that I did a Red Hot Chili Peppers reference here in the sermon. Uh, but uh, it's this idea, right, that what, what we've been given, what's been entrusted to us, and, and, and pay attention historically, you are here, right, whether you believe in Jesus or not, but you're here because for 2,000 years, people have taken the story of Jesus and have passed it down and kept it going and kept it going and kept it going. It's been this legacy that's gone. And unless Jesus comes back, whether we do our jobs or not, it'll keep going. There are faithful people who take this uh, message of, of Jesus and really embody it to the point where that's all we have to give away. And so what people have for generations to come will be because of what God's done in our life and how that's handed down as it goes. Now, what I love about, first, or if I say 1 Timothy, and I'm going to do it multiple times, I really mean 2 Timothy. So as long as we're on the same team on that, we're going to be okay. But in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, and as he's writing, the first seven verses is just an introduction. And it's a reminder of things that matter. It's a reminder of the Spirit's work in this whole process. But he doesn't get further than eight verses in the Bible. Now, he didn't know it was eight verses, but anyways, we get eight verses into uh, this letter before we hit this moment and we come up against the biggest hurdle we face as to whether we will keep going or whether it will stop. What I mean is in our spiritual journey, in our life of following Christ, we're eight verses in and Paul brings up the thing that will either make us fall away or we'll learn how to pursue Suffering. Eight verses in, and Paul already brings up suffering. How do we keep going when it gets tough? And Paul brings up this letter. But what I love is Jesus gives us an analogy uh, when he's teaching. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives this parable of the soils or the sower, uh, where the farmer went out and he sowed seeds among the crop, and some fell on hard places, other fell in rocky places, other fell in thorns, and some fell on good soil. But when he addresses this rocky soil, he's talking about this thing Paul brings up. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus said, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone, if this might be you, who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, Right? It's kind of like that really good uh, message you heard or the, that, those stories in Scripture that give you kind of like the spiritual goosebumps where you're like, oh, that's 
If that's God, I'm, I'm in on that, right? You hear it and you're excited about it. But then in verse 21, it says, but since they have no root, since it's not buried in, since it just keeps hitting these rocks and there's nowhere for it to go, it lasts only a short time. Because when trouble or persecution or suffering comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Now all that God has for us comes to a screeching halt because as soon as following Jesus or being led by the Spirit or being obedient to God gets hard, it's easy to fall away. Now, for a lot of us, it may not necessarily be a falling away from the faith and now we're claiming nothing or some other brand of religion because things got tough. A lot of times we just pause or we get stuck or paralyzed in where we are and we learn how to live kind of this risk-averse faith life where we don't really trust God with much, but we try to be a better person because when it gets tough, if I have to do something that's out of my comfort zone, well, I don't want to do that because I've got these rocks in here and I'd rather see the word get blown away than to see these rocks get blown up so that God can do work in my life. So I'd rather keep my rocks and let God be this shallow level thing that gives me the spiritual goosebumps every time there's something inspiring, but doesn't really do much in my life. I like to be in control too much to let God start breaking up some stuff. Today in 2 Timothy, we need reminded and challenged of the same words that Paul passes on to Timothy. Pay attention, because the thing that will keep us from keep going may very well be in our lives how well we do when suffering comes. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says to this young guy, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Right? Now, think about it. What you're, if you told, uh, went home when you were like 19 and your mom and, you know, it's Thanksgiving time and everyone's like, hey, what are you going to do when you grow up? And you're like, there's this prisoner I've been reading about and following, uh, and I think I want to be like that. Right? Uh, your mom would probably, like, there, there'd be an intervention, right? Uh, get the family together, uh, maybe some dude from around the corner that, you know, like, it would be a moment of, like, no, nah, let's, let's course correct this one. And Paul's writing and saying, hey, listen, I know the optics aren't good. I know it's a little crazy to want to follow somebody who's following somebody who ended up dying and now I'm in jail, like, no, you'll be, it'll be better for you. He's not saying any of that. He says, rather... Here's a crazy invitation. Join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, right? That's an easy spot where the recruiting starts to get a little muffled. Don't be ashamed of this life, but join me in suffering. So what he invites him to, this legacy that he leaves on, is not one like maybe you and I are used to of risk aversion, I'll do it so long as I don't have to get out of my comfort zone. I'll do it so long as it doesn't require me to do anything I don't want to do, right? I'm in on Team Jesus so long as it's just the stories I like. Leave out the stuff I don't. What he invites him to is a life of Christ-likeness. And this reminder, don't fall away because it gets hard, but join me in it. Now, in this, I want us to uh, grab onto this image that for me is helpful, is that when we look at what Paul imparts to Timothy, I want us to think of it in terms like this, that in the Christian life, suffering is not a barricade, it's a hurdle. It's not a barricade, it's a hurdle. Now, if you were to try to cross certain roads this morning, and some of you had to do a couple turnarounds, you cannot pass certain streets in Chicago today because there's barricades set up. You hit a thing, it said you cannot pass, and so you either stopped in your destination, you may look around, there may be faces not here today because they didn't think it was worth it. I'm going to have to cross the barricade, I'm going to have to go up to like Wisconsin to come back down, there's no way I'm doing it, so you know what, today's an online day, right? Because of a barricade, I'm just not, right? But then there's a difference with hurdles, right? I, I, I did track growing up, let me, um, let me preface, I did and field, I threw shot put and discus right? So I watched track, but I did Anfield. Uh, and so in that, right, uh, uh, I, I've heard, I've seen it happen, though I've not myself participated. Uh, uh, when, when people train for a hurdle relay or a hurdle race, right? Any hurdlers in the room? Oh man, I knew there was going to be a hand. All right. For a hurdle race, you prepare for hurdles. You know they're coming. It's part of the race, right? Nobody sets out and like, hey, we're going to do a, a, a four-by-one relay, or one-by-four relay, four-by-four, four by anyway, four-by-four relay, and, you know, hey, guess what? Shocker today, we're going to throw some hurdles in there just to mess with you, 
right? You know when you jump into it the kind of race that you're getting into. It's kind of like getting into a Spartan race or anything. You know what's coming up. You prepare for what's coming up. You train for what's coming up. And what we find in Paul is as he's encouraging Timothy, it's almost like that weird geeked out fitness type dude that's kind of like, it's going to be crazy. There's electric barbed wires. It's going to be wild and we're going to have so much fun, right? There are going to be times that are hard. You're going to go through the mud. It's going to be tough. Get ready for it because the end result is worth the suffering we're getting through. Suffering is not a barricade that we stop when it hits. There are hurdles we get through so we can continue getting where we've been promised we can go. And I want us to look at it through this way. If we're going to keep going when it gets tough, you need to, number one, know where you're starting from and know where you're heading towards. You need to know where your story starts from and where it's heading towards. Uh, this isn't about general suffering, right? Like, oh man, I got this weird like, thing in my knee and it's, just, it's been really tough. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about physical suffering or mental suffering or relational suffering. And it doesn't kind of like sweep those under the rug. That's just not what he's talking about. So it's not like, well, life is hard. Why is it hard? Because what Paul's talking about here is a life of struggling and suffering because we're pursuing Jesus. Decisions we've got to make that are hard because we're pursuing Jesus. The way things look. And how people view what we're doing because we're following Jesus. Suffering is worth it so long as you have the perspective of where your story starts and how it started and where it's going to end. And in 1 Timothy, I said again, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, or verse 9 he says this. He has saved us. Jesus has saved us and he's called us to a what? A holy life. Holy, this word that means set apart or different, uh, other than. It's not the normal. It's something over here. Uh, he saved us out. Now listen, uh, if you were uh, drowning out in Lake Michigan and someone comes saves you, you got saved out of a bad situation. You're not going to be sitting at Do-Right Donut enjoying an old-fashioned glaze and a coffee and someone's like, I'm going to save you. You're like, bro, I'm good. <laughs> Things are good here. Life is fine. And we need to be reminded of what we've been saved out of, that it was bad. There's good news because we've been living in bad news. It's understanding the difficulties and the toughness and the harshness and the suffering we're already in. Jesus saved us out of that, but he doesn't just pull us out. He also calls us into something, a holy life. A holy life that may end up in prison, but it doesn't stop our mission. A holy life that may go through some difficult times, but doesn't stop because of them. This holy life is a big deal in light of suffering. We have a certainty in suffering. Jesus promises you will suffer. Right? And the reality is, you can suffer whether you're following Jesus or whether you're not. You're going to either way. If you suffer apart from God, uh, listen, life away from God produces its own kind of suffering, and most of us have testimonies about it. When I was over here, when I was away from God, most of my worst moments in life, if you want to hear my list of you know, the, the B-sides, the not-so-greats, it's mostly, I would say all of them, our life apart from Christ. Because the reality for us is we typically let the feeling of being in control overshadow the reality of everything that's falling apart. Life isn't great. Life's tough. It struggles. But at least I'm in control. And because we've got that, we're willing to say, well, it's not that bad. The minute God shows up and says, I'm in control, I'm King Jesus, I'm the master, I'm the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm over all, in all, and through all, it's like, well, I'd rather be in control and suffer than let you be in control and give me rest and peace and the things you promise. But then there's also this suffering through our calling to a holy life. That just because it's separate doesn't mean it's without suffering, it just means the suffering's a little bit different. Because we know who's in control here, and we know he's capable of it, as opposed to us. We know uh, that we have a certainty of victory. With, when we're in control, we hope that we're going to be okay. With Jesus in control, we know we're going to be okay. Now, in this also, we know whose plan we're living into and how it all ends, right? We tend to play chess or checkers while God's playing chess. He sees 13 moves ahead, and we're like, I don't know, I think today this would be fun, Right? Suffering will come in that story, but it won't derail you, nor will it define you. Jesus has the final say, 
not the broken world we are saved from and not the brokenness that's in us. And that's the difference. This holy life certainly involves suffering, but we suffer differently. And he says this as he keeps going, not because of anything we've done. He saved us and called us not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Listen, God didn't suddenly become graceful. If you grew up in church, I remember thinking like the God of the Old Testament like knew how to attack some people. He could open up grounds and swallow folks. There was fire showing up. It got crazy. But what we're reminded here, God's been graceful since the beginning. We've just had a misnomer of how all that worked. He's been graceful. We're reminded he was graceful. But it also says it's now been revealed. And so uh, God, sometimes we need reminded in a culture that values success and uh, uh, authoritative leadership and productivity, we need to be reminded how little we've actually done to gain everything we have in Christ. You didn't have to push for it. You didn't, your resume doesn't matter. Nobody cares what degrees you've got on your wall. It doesn't matter how you push. And there's part of us that will die in that because so much of what we hang ourselves on is what we've done. Look what I did. Look how I pulled myself up. Look what I've made out of myself. Look at all the work that I've done. I'm paying these student loans. Someone better appreciate it, right? And then what we're reminded with Paul is, listen, all the good stuff, all the incredible eternal things you've got, you need to be reminded you didn't touch any of that. It was a gift. It was a blessing. So how do we know this grace? In verse 10, he says, uh, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Uh, it's this Christmas story, right? How we know it is God showed up. He didn't just stay up where everything was perfect and fine. He could have done that. But in Philippians chapter 2, we're reminded that, that he left all of that to come down to be with people like us. Not because we deserve it or we're worthy of it, but because he loves us. And it says, because he showed up, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality through the gospel, to light through the gospel. The fact that Jesus showed up is grace. He destroyed death, its power is lost with Jesus, and death is no longer final. We can't be afraid of suffering if we already know that death is defeated. And in Christ, if we have life, life everlasting, and we know this through the good news about Jesus. So the hope is this. If we know where we started, our story doesn't start with, man, when I was in high school, I started screwing stuff up, and then in college it became this kind of, right? That's not our story. That was all put to death in Christ, and then we were rise to walk in this new life with him. Our story starts when Jesus said it's finished. And at that point, things started for us. And then there's this empty tomb where now all of a sudden we get to have this rebirth, this immortality where we may at some point the pulse in our body will stop, but our life will not. It's eternal. And so what we're reminded through in this is if we know where we've started and we know the truth of where we're going, suffering is just a hurdle. But Paul says this to the church in Philippi in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I press on. I press on. There's endurance language there, perseverance language, because it's you don't have to press through stuff that's fun, right? When grandma's like, hey, do you want cookies? It's like, gosh, if I have to, right? No, it's like, give me the, I've already, we just ate, but I'm ready, right? Right? You press on through stuff you don't want to do. But he says, I press on. I've got endurance. There's grit. I'm willing to find the determination to get where I need to go to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Because Jesus grabbed onto my life, I'm going to grab fully on hold of his, and I'll press through whatever it takes to make sure I've got it. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet. Now, if you need any encouragement in your spiritual life, it's that the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, says, I've not figured it out either. I've not fully arrived. I'm not the fullness of what I wish I was. But he says this, but one thing I do, I don't got all this figured out, but there's one thing I do. He says, forgetting what is behind. Now remember, uh, Paul is a former Pharisee who was caught early on in his life uh, uh, putting to death these people who were starting to follow this Jesus-following movement. 
And so he's got this baggage hanging off of, now I don't know what your story is. My guess is it what didn't start with killing Christians. My guess. And Paul's like, I forgot all of that. Here's one thing I do. I forget my story. I forget my past. I forget all of the garbage I come with. And I strain towards what's ahead. Because I know where I started and where I'm going are wildly different things. I press on, there's that word again, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Because I start with what Jesus has done, I press on even through suffering towards Christ. So as a believer, your life starts with Jesus. Your story ends with Jesus. A holy life we're called to is modeled by Jesus who suffered. Pay attention, he suffered. But didn't let suffering stop him. And when we can't remember how our new life began, sorry, when we can remember how our new life began, we can get through anything knowing what he has for us in Christ. Now, the second thing is we keep reading as you turn into the next couple verses is this. If we're going to keep going when it gets hard, then you need to know who you are in light of who Jesus is. You need to have an understanding of you in light of who Christ is. Uh, This is identity stuff. It's understanding what's going on with you. For Paul, a prisoner awaiting death for the crime of making Jesus his king. Pay attention to that. Awaiting death. Because instead of the Roman emperor being king over his life, he's going with King Jesus. And he can't stop telling people about it. So they threw him in jail. He has developed a confidence of who he is in light of who Jesus is. And he's writing to this young guy who we find, as you read through First and Second Timothy, has got some confidence issues. There's some timidity there. There's some cowardice, is the word in verse 7. Where he says, don't, the Spirit didn't give you cowardice. God in you didn't make you timid or afraid. But instead, it gave you power and love and discipline, grit, perseverance, self, right, to get through so that you can get where you're going. Here, Paul only knows who he is in light of who Jesus is. Uh, How many of you have ever been to a haunted house? Okay. I hate them. Most of it is because I don't, I'm not a small guy, but I will whimper in a corner in fetal position when a clown comes at me, all right? And so I have this risk aversion. It's been a while since I've been in one because, you know, now I'm like, no, I'm, it's, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm beyond haunted houses. The reality is I, I still can't deal with it, right? Heights, haunted houses, snakes, I'm out. Can't do it, right? And, but pay attention to this. Haunted houses only work if the lights are off, Right? If you went to a haunted house and all the lights were on, what you would see is a 17-year-old kid, probably the trombone player from high school, in a, sorry if you're a trombone player, I played tuba, so there's, we're good, right? Brass, we're all fine. But, right, this kid, 17 years old, in a mask he bought from an empty box store that's now a Halloween costume shop with weird paint on him that makes him look, and you look at it and you're like, this dude's not scary, right? This kid's playing Halo tonight when he goes home. He's eating box craft mac and cheese. I still do it, but we know that that's what's going on. This isn't a scary scenario. When the lights are on, you see everything for what it actually is. And you're able to have a better perception of what scary is and what it isn't. The only difference is when the lights are off, you can mask some stuff that makes you feel like you're in an environment that's different than what the reality actually is. The only difference is the light or the dark. In the dark, not having clarity is the only way they can get you. The same is true for us. In the dark, we get a distorted view of who we are. We can think that we're a bunch of things. We can view ourselves in certain light. We can see uh, that when we are a certain way, in the dark, it's not a clear picture. But once we view ourselves in the light of Christ, we see ourselves for who we really are. That's why Paul, when he's writing to the uh, church in Ephesus, he says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise. And let the light of Christ shine on you. Because when it's not, we live dead. But when it's ready, we're alive. When when the light of Christ is what shines over your life, you see the garbage for what it is, but you see yourself for who you truly are. Here's the reality. Paul's sitting in prison. The prison guards don't define who he is. 
The Roman emperor doesn't define who he is. How the culture in the Roman Empire sees him is not who he is because he sees himself for who he actually is. Paul is confident in who he is in Christ and he's reminding Timothy, as we need to be reminded, who we are, the calling we have, and the responsibility given to us. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 11, he says this, And of this gospel, of this good news, I was appointed as a herald, as an apostle, and as a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. I'm not suffering because the government's uh, bad and, or, and, you know, and I'm just trying to be good. I'm not suffering because I was wrongly accused. I'm not suffering because the system came. I'm suffering because of the mantle of Christ that I've taken upon me, and I'm walking it out faithfully every day. A herald. He says, I'm a herald. This is a king's messenger who goes ahead of the king and proclaims whatever the king wants everybody to know before the king shows up. Paul says, listen, my job is to proclaim this good news. He says that I'm an apostle. I was sent with a commission. That's literally what the word means, a sent out one. Uh, Go, go tell him, go tell him. And then he says, I'm also a teacher, one who helps people understand. I love in the book of Philippians because Paul gives us this reminder uh, that, listen, my job here, it's this letter of joy from a guy who's chained in prison. So if we're going to learn about suffering from anybody, this isn't the worst guy. And I love that he says, I'm here, I'm in jail, I'm chained against this wall, there's prisoners and prison guards. But what I love in the first chapter is he reminds us, but I get to preach and I get to preach and I get to preach. And guess what? If the dude over here falls asleep while I'm preaching, it's fine. I'll wait for him. Because when he wakes up, he's not going anywhere. So I'll just finish my sermon. Right? I've got an attentive audience. I can still do what I'm called to do despite the circumstances I'm in. Right? He knows who he is because of who God's called him to be. So if that just happens to be in a situation of suffering, so be it. I still get to do what God's called me to do and be who God's called me to be. He's not naive to his suffering, but he's got clarity on who he is. He's got clarity on his responsibility, and he's got clarity on his commission. He goes on to say this, yet this is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed. A lot of us need to have a little reset moment. Do you know in whom you've believed? Do you know him? Not just cute Sunday school stories from when you were little. Uh, not like the, you know, precious Instagram post with like the wheat field with like the hand doing this thing and then, you know, it's very inspiring. Do you know Jesus? Have you walked with him? Has he brought you through some stuff? Has he carried you? Has he saved you? Has he called you into that holy life? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of any of this because I'm confident in whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted into him until that day. Don't be ashamed of where you are or what others say. Do you have that kind of faith in Jesus? What, what have you actually entrusted to him, really? What have you put in his, uh, that, that's his and his alone? What have you given to Jesus that you don't try to take back every week? What's the stuff that you've laid at his feet and you've got peace knowing he's over it and I don't have to be. Because whatever you don't trust to him will be a constant area of suffering as you live out every day. Whatever you don't trust with him, now you're in control. And how well's that been going for you? What have you entrusted to him? If you've only trusted him with your sin, don't be surprised Then, if you didn't trust him with your finances or you didn't trust him with your relationships or you didn't trust him with the way you think and perceive the world or you didn't trust him with your work, don't be surprised when that stuff starts suffering because you haven't trusted him with it. Trust him with everything. Trust him with your worry and your doubt. Trust him with managing your finances. Trust him with guarding your relationships according to his word. Are you convinced that he is able to guard every aspect of your life. He says, I'm convinced, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted until that day. Here's the goal for us, is to stop living for this day, being mindful of that day. When Jesus comes back, being reminded that, hey, at the end of this day, you may have finished your Netflix series or started a new one, right? You may have eaten a a delicious dinner, and I pray that blessing over you. may be filled with the Lord's protein, Right? But when you go to bed at night, what have you entrusted that actually matters when he comes back? 
What have you trusted him with that's got eternal value and weight? I've always been challenged with this. Like some of us at the end of a week, if God gave you everything you asked for, most of us, the biggest thing that God would have answered is that we would have eaten blessed food. And that's about it because that's all we asked for, right? God bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies as you're downing a double cheeseburger, right? He can do miracles, but not that often, friends. Like give him a break, right? In this moment, we realize what fully have we trusted him with? our lives, so that even while we're in prison, suffering, struggling, hurting, that we know exactly who we are and whose we are, and we can make it through, you will learn to suffer well when you align who you are and the confidence of who Jesus is. The last one is this. If we're going to keep going when it gets hard, then you need to know what is true, and you need to know the manner in which you are to live it out. You need to know what's true and how to live it out. Uh, Does anybody see the movie Blindside? 2009, right? Super good. I loved it. I played left tackle in football, and so, like, that was my... So, usually it's movies about quarterbacks. This one was about, like, my position that no one ever cared about, so I was really excited about it, right? And it's about this young guy named Michael Orr who uh, grows up, rough circumstances, goes into college at Ole Miss, ends up in the NFL, wins a Super Bowl ring with the Ravens, and goes on to have a really incredible career. And this story, one of the reasons we love it, it's, it's inspiring, it's motivating, until we come to find out from Michael Orr, the real person... Most of that wasn't true. If you go back and read interviews or you watch videos or you read his book, he had to go back afterwards and correct a lot of things in the movie because the director got a hold of a story and it wasn't as juicy as what he wanted it to be. It wasn't as emotional as what he wanted it to be. The real heroes of the character of the story weren't who he wanted them to be. It wasn't dramatic enough. So he embellished parts of it so that the movie would be better. And Michael Orr has since, like I said, gone out, written books, done interviews to get the story straight of how it actually happened. Here's why I say that. Because we have the same tendency. For a lot of us, we take the Jesus story and the biblical truths, but we bend them to fit the story we want to tell. We shift them to make the story we want to believe, and we start crafting them to be the kind of life we prefer to live. Right? We love the, you know, beckon the children to come. Like, I like a Jesus that tells his disciples, yo, put the lines down, bring the kids here, we're hanging out, right? I got juice boxes, we're going to make this happen. We like that Jesus. We like the Jesus who's healing people and goes to the guy beside the pool who no one's helped in 40 years. They've just walked past him, but, but God, we love that. But man, we can edit all the other stuff. The stuff we don't really want to live out. It's easier if, if our Jesus falling up doesn't really involve faith. It's helpful if we don't have to go out of our comfort zone. It's helpful if we get to stick with our own ideologies and preferences and we don't have to like become kingdom people. We prefer this. And so we craft this story to be what we want it to be. Paul tells Timothy that even if suffering is going to be a part of your story, don't change the gospel. It doesn't change who Jesus is. It doesn't change what God's doing. It doesn't shift anything around. You're going to struggle, but stick with what you've been given. In first, whew, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he says this, What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. With faith and love in Christ Jesus, he says, guard the good deposit. Right? Now, some of you would love if the Illinois lottery gave you a good deposit, right? We'd have some celebration the next Sunday, right? And Paul's talking about, man, God has, God has deposited truth into my life. He's deposited goodness into my life, purpose and meaning and calling into my life. It's not just what he pulled out of me, of my sin and my shame and my guilt and my garbage. It's what he's put back into me. This good deposit, it was entrusted to you, right? Paul writing to Timothy, it was entrusted to you to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That word keep as the pattern. In the King James, it says to hold fast the form. 
In the English Standard Version, it says to follow the pattern. In the New American Standard, it says to retain the standard. It says idea and concrete work, if you want to think of it that way, where you lay out the two-by-fours and the boards, how you want the concrete to go when you pour it in. And so you don't pull those forms out until the concrete's firm and solid and ready. Don't mess with what it was originally meant to be. Don't pull it off too soon. It's there for a purpose. It's the idea of an architect setting out to build a building where the builder doesn't get to show up and be like, you know what? I know the architect said we were going to do this, but I'm kind of thinking we'll go this direction. That's not your job. The architect, God, has given us what it is. Don't mess with what it is. Live it out that way. Take it in that way. Let it mess with you that way, but don't change what it is. He says, I've given you clear, authentic pattern of good, true teaching. Hold on to that. It's good, and on its own, it doesn't need you or anyone else's edits. Not just what is true, right? So he says, hold on to what is true. Don't change any of that, but hold on to it in the right way. I did student ministry for 10 years, uh, junior high, high school, and, and college students. And in that time, this worked really well with junior hires, Right? Uh, we would go uh, somewhere and get a burger and, and fries and a milkshake. So think Culver's, right? I'm going to go personal preference here, but that's what we're doing. Okay? And we'd get like the double cheeseburger with bacon because that's what God would want. And we would do that and we'd get the cheese curds because come Lord G, you can tell we're getting close to lunch now. And we'd get a milkshake. And I'd lay it out and we'd have 100, 125 uh, junior high kids and we'd say, hey, who wants this for free tonight, right? There's not a, there, I mean, you may get that one kid that's like, oh, I'm not eating today. But other than that, like everyone's down, right? So everyone's like, I want it, I want it, I want it. Everyone wants it. So then what we do is say, great, well, hold on real quick. And we'd pull out a blender and we'd throw the cheeseburger in there. And then we'd throw the cheese curds in there and then we'd throw the milkshake in there and we'd blend it up and then we'd put a straw in it and say, well, here you go. And all of a sudden, everyone who's 12 no longer wants this thing. Even though that's how it's going to end up if you read a biology book, right? It doesn't look good. And we would use that analogy to be reminded of this. The meal can be incredible, but the method you serve it is just as important. Right? And we've seen this throughout church history. People taking the right truth and bending it to be whatever they want it to be, and serving it in a method that messes with everybody, and nobody wants the good stuff. Not because it's not good, it's because the way it's delivered. We've seen it, we've done it, we take the right truth, but we deliver it in the wrong heart. You can look through American history, you can look through church history, and you'll find things like American slavery, you'll find things like the Salem witch trials, where people took God's word and bent it so that it looked a certain way, so that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And they took truth that meant something else and turned it into something different that nobody wanted to touch. Paul tells Timothy, and we need to hear this, keep the truth. But as you take it in, consume it with faith and love in Jesus. With faith and love in Jesus. That you fully trust Jesus. Jesus. And with love. That that is how it goes. To guard the good deposit entrusted to you through the Holy Spirit. This is the image of a military watchman. Someone who at night is scanning the horizon for anything moving because we care so much about what we're guarding, we don't want to let anything mess with it. We care so much about the good news. We care so much about the life of Christ. You can't mess with who Jesus was, what he said, and how he said to live it out. And we care about it so much, I'm not letting anyone touch it. And here's the truth. I've struggled with things Jesus say and what I wish were true. But it's not my job. Do we guard what we've been entrusted with? Even if suffering comes because of it, the gospel is still good. And no one's editing of it will make it better. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, guard in fullness in your life so you can believe and live out the real deal. As I said at the beginning, and I want to remind us as we close, suffering in a Jesus-following life is not a barricade. It's a hurdle. Barricades stop you, and they keep you from where you're going. And unfortunately, for a lot of us, we could trail, myself included, throughout our life. If you were to take a timeline of your life, you could see, I think I fell away there, and I think I stopped here, and I think when this thing hit, right? And not small stuff, death, diagnosis, financial, relational all these different things. I think I fell away. I think I paused. I think I got paralyzed. I think I stopped there. 
What we're reminded, though, is as we follow Christ, suffering's not a barricade. It's a hurdle. Hurdles obstruct the path, but they don't stop you from your destination. In a hurdle race, the runner knows what's coming, prepares for that, expects it, gets themselves ready to be able to take on what's coming. Paul's legacy that he's leaving and he's learning and is passing on to Timothy in order to pass on to others is to expect suffering. Train for a life that will not be easy. Press forward knowing suffering will be a part of your race. I love in Genesis chapter 3, I love it because it helps frame some things. Satan has worked to get us to question God's word to introduce doubt to our faith since the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, right? You're only a couple chapters into the Bible, and Satan's first thing he does is he says, did God really say? His first thing is, God said, did he really mean that though? I know God said it, but he, he probably, there's grace there, right? Like you can do whatever you want. I know God said this, but you can kind of figure it out, right? You can do whatever. I, I know God said this, but you could be in control. That's kind of the end result of it. You could frame what's good and evil. You could figure out what's right and wrong. Why does God get to do that? And all Satan has to do is start bending that way. I know God said this, but really, right? God's word's been attacked consistently throughout history, but we're here today. Church history, you can go back and find some garbage, and there's some real stuff that's messed up. And oftentimes, we've started telling those stories over the incredible stories of the faithful saints who have guarded what's been entrusted to them, and they've passed it on so that the word of God would spread. It's, it's right? Paul goes to Timothy and says, remember Grandma Lois? How she just faithfully served? And Eunice, your mom, how she faith. We, we forget those stories because we remember these epic historic moments of the church failing, and we forget the goodness the goodness of what God's done through his people generation after generation after generation who were courageously filled with love and power and discipline to stand firm against suffering and to guard this good deposit that was given to them. If you're like me, many of us have become good at taking the most risk-averse, safe way of following Jesus possible. As little faith as possible, retaining as much control as possible, and presenting what we hope it looks like some kind of good life. But Paul reminds us that a little suffering pales in comparison to the incredible reward that we're receiving where we're going. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 goes through this incredible faith history of uh, Old Testament. By faith, so-and-so accomplished this. By faith, so-and-so got through this. By faith, by faith, by faith. Because they trusted, because they were convinced, because they gave themselves. And then you turn the ch uh, page into chapter 12, and he says this, and let us run with perseverance. Perseverance. Kind of the get through it -edness. Willing to stick it out when it's tough. With perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him, because he knew what was on the other end of the hurdles, he endured the hurdle that it took to get there, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God and the throne. Consider him. Think about that, right? Something to ponder as you go. Consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from who? Not from God, not the one who loved him and gave himself for him, not the one who loves him, from sinners, from people like you and me. They have no power, no control. He endured all of that so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's a hurdle. So my encouragement for you is this, is to stop suffering from being, living life apart from him and to surrender yourself to the one who suffered the cross so that you could have life and have it abundant. And my big uh, uh, kind of challenge or, or kind of if, if we walk forward in this together is this, is to trust God in maturity, that we would move away from a religion we've created or fell into uh, of risk aversion and safety and control where Jesus, move towards Jesus, where he's called us to trust him and to give ourselves to him and to surrender and to mature into this holy calling that we've got. 
Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we are grateful uh, that the story we've been given, this good news that's been passed on to us, is not one uh, that's just a giant success story that we have to live up to. That it's not about becoming good enough or doing good enough or uh, making sure that we've checked all the right boxes. But God, it's a story of grace and redemption where we've been saved out of what we've gotten ourselves into and called into a life we don't deserve to live. It's a life that doesn't promise that it's going to be free of suffering or pain. But it is a life where you've promised us that when that day comes, that there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. We may have to get through it here, and you promise we will. But reminded of Jesus' promise to us that we can take heart because you've overcome the world. That though for a while we may struggle and sorrow may last for the night, that joy comes in the morning. So Father, would you remind us deep in our soul that as your people, we've chosen to follow a suffering Savior who died on a cross for the good of those around us. So Father, would we be reminded suffering's going to be a part of the story, but it's not where our story falls off and it's not where our story stops. It's just another check mark in our race we're running towards you to be more like you and to live into this holy calling that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we go into communion, um, I want us to think about this. Think about Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, night he was betrayed, suffering. It says he was crying and his uh, sweat was, or blood was pouring out of him. Like, it's a crazy scene. Grief stricken, agony, abandoned. Remember, all the people that were around him were sleeping. Nobody there, crying out before God. And as he's in that moment, he asks God if there's any other way. We've had that prayer. God, if there's a way where I can have a little bit more control, if there's a way where this can go the way I want it to, not this way. He goes out to find out everybody's abandoned him still. They're still sleeping and everything's still crazy. And he comes back and the next time he prays, says, God, Father, it's not what I want to be done. I want what you want to be done. And if it means suffering, so be it. Jesus saw suffering in the language we've used today as a hurdle, not a barricade. It's a hurdle towards God's plan. We remember because sometimes we forget that the image of Jesus we are conforming to with our lives is one of a suffering servant, of a crucified Savior that suffering is part of the redemption story. We love Easter Sunday, but it does go through Good Friday. And as we come to communion, what I want you to think about for a couple seconds, just some reflection time before we take it together, and this may be weird, but would you spend some time thinking, reflecting about Jesus' suffering because he loved you and gave himself up for you? He was willing to say, "Not my. if you could do anything but this, but if it's for someone like you, and you, and you, God, it's not what I want to be done, but what you, that he was willing to suffer for you. Would you reflect on that? And then we'll come back and take communion together.
you hold the bread? Think about the words of Scripture. On the very night he was betrayed, suffering because he was abandoned, suffering because the people that were following him that he loved turned their back on him, suffering because people are messed up. On the night he was betrayed, it says he took the bread and he gave what? Thanks. On the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks and reminded his disciples and us too, he said, this is my body broken for you. He broke it and he handed it out and he said, eat, right? Consume, take in, fully make it a part, bring it into who you are. Eat this to remember me. Let's eat together. repurposes this old Jewish tradition that they were there for anyways. He says, this is the covenant of uh, the new covenant, right? Uh, This is a reminder for us that it's not what you've done. It's not your resume. It's not how good you've been, how fewer cuss words you used this week than last week, right? How more of a patient driver you were. It's that his grace has covered all your sin. That this blood that flows out of the cross covers us. Somehow this staining material in Jesus' blood could wash us clean. Doesn't make sense. Neither does joy and suffering. But when we take this, we remember that the joy we have is because he suffered. Because we have a finish line that's way better than what we could have come up with our own. So as we drink this, we remember the covenant we've got, the the binding commitment that Jesus gave to us was that it's grace, grace that our story hangs on. So we drink this to remember him. Lord Jesus, as we sing this song together, as we worship, as we bring these words of truth, historic Christian truth, into prayer as we sing them out loud to you, God, would you remind us of Jesus in whom we've put our trust. That though sorrow may last for the night, the joy's coming in the morning. And that even while we're struggling, there's still so much to be thankful for. Father, we love you in Jesus.